Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to continue through uh, our look at this book. Uh, the text will also be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but if you do or on your device, I would encourage you to open there. Uh, and as we begin, uh, I remember the day where I got this phone call where uh, the person on the other end, uh, someone very close to me, said, I just won hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, if you knew this person, you knew that this was a substantial sum. It is a substantial sum of money, but, but to them in particular, uh, it, it was enormous, right? Uh, for them, it's kind of life-changing and being able to change trajectory in some ways. So there was uh, a celebratory moment, uh, but then there was also a moment where I, I kind of know how this person handled their money, right? And I was like, so what are you planning on doing with that money now that you have it? And they're like, well, I got to get a new car and I got to do this and I got to do this. And I'm like, cool, that's great. Hey, um, can I introduce you to a, 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 a person who can help you invest that or just think through financial planning, right? So, because that's actually not as much money as you think it is. You can burn through that pretty quickly. They're like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good, right? Uh, and so I pursued it a little bit, but a wise counselor friend of mine told me years ago, hey, don't do more work than the counselee, right? There's only so much work you can do for another person before you're just like, hey, I got to let you be a grown-up and make some decisions. So, uh, some time passed, less than a year, and I decided to revisit and said, hey, how's the money thing going? And they're like, eh, it's all gone. <laughs> uh, they had spent it, right? Uh, so bottom line is, it's tough to invest well sometimes. Uh, when I did um, pro sports ministry a number of years back, uh, one of the areas of ministry we do at the beginning of every season when the rookies would report to camp is we would bring, bring in a, a Christian financial planner to help them work with the money that they get. I mean, sometimes they just get these absorbent sums of money, but uh, here's the reality about the NFL. First of all, you know what NFL stands for, right? Not for long, all right? Uh, And that's because the average career of an NFL athlete is three years. For running backs, it's two, little known fact, okay? Um, and, And another little known fact is probably within about two years of leaving the league, most of these athletes are out of money. And so it was an important ministry, and again, this reminder that it's hard to invest well. Now, it's not just money that it's hard to invest well. Um, A number of years ago, so four years now, uh, one of my first sermon series was The Grace-Paced Life, looking at the crazy, hurried pace of our culture. And a book that was impactful for me was uh, a book called The Unhurried Life by Alan Fadling. And he talks about how in our crazy, frenetic culture, um, if we don't take time to live an unhurried life, God will oftentimes bring us into a season of forced unhurry, sickness, burnout, whatever that may be. And I was reminded of that recently as I'm thinking through the last couple of years of, of a pandemic. In a way, I felt like culturally, it was God's way of imposing a forced unhurry upon us. And over the course of that time in my own life and talking to many of you, I had so many of you say, hey, I learned how to invest well in my time again, right? I actually rested. I took Sabbath, right? Some of you said we actually invested in relationship with family members and whatnot. We actually ate meals together. Gasp, right? And so we felt like, hey, we're investing well. Here's the thing. Is, is, I'm not saying the pandemic ended, but life sure did change this summer and fall. And, and, and I'm not sure we're any better for what we had experienced and what we learned about investing our time and investing in relationships. In fact, there's some ways where I go, are we worse than we were before? I don't know. But the bottom line is, is it's hard to invest 
well. And there's many reasons why this happens, right? Maybe we don't understand the value of something like money, time, relationship. Maybe we're actually lazy, right? It's hard work to actually invest well. Or we're too busy to even think about it. Maybe we're risk-averse, right? Captured by fear, right? There's always risk when we're investing something. And then finally, maybe we're just selfish. We want to spend our time and our money and our relational capacity on ourselves. Whatever it is, I think the bottom line is, is it's, it's hard to invest well. In fact, it's not in our nature to do that necessarily. And if we struggle to invest well in things like money and time and relationships, here's my question. Might faith and might the gospel, something that has been entrusted to us, fall into that same category? Something that we actually don't do a very good job at investing well in. Well, you might be like, Anthony, why are you talking about investing in the same context of the gospel? Well, uh, in part, it's because of what Dave taught us last week from 2 Timothy 1. Uh, He walks through, he says, I am not ashamed. I know whom I believe. That was the refrain we talked about last week. And he said, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. So God is guarding this thing that has been entrusted to Paul. All right, entrusted. Another, Another word for entrusted could be used elsewhere is this idea of invest, right? How we handle and how we care for that. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now what he's talking about here is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We'll talk about what that is here in just a minute, but but what he's saying is, is Paul's saying, God deposited the gospel in me. He entrusted it to me. I'm entrusting it to you, right? It's impacted your life. And and, and really the question that we're left with as we approach this passage here today is what then does Tim do with it? And consequently, and principally, what, what do we, if we've called on Jesus Christ in faith, what do we do with the good deposit that's in us? What guidance does God's word have for us today? And so the big idea is simply this, is that the gospel is the good deposit. Invest it well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into our first main point here today. Lord, uh, thank you for this morning. And Father, um, I will confess in my own life, I'm actually a pretty poor uh, investor. (laughs) Lord, there are so many of these four characteristics of busy or not understanding the value or even selfishness that, that leads me to be a poor investor of a lot of things. And Lord, I'm sure for every single one of us who do call on you in faith that that we struggle with investing in that or investing that good deposit as well. And so, Holy Spirit, would you use your word this morning to help us just have eyes to see uh, how we lean into uh, what you would call us to do with uh, the good deposit of the gospel. So, Holy Spirit, would you guide and protect my words? Um, And we love you. Uh, We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so here's our first point we're going to look at. The first question is, is what do we do with the deposit? What, what do we do with it? And there's two things we're going to see. Uh, Paul calls Timothy to be strengthened and to th- strengthen others. To be strengthened and to strengthen others. So uh, here's the first part, be strengthened. Uh, one, uh, verse 1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in you in Christ Jesus. All right? That's the first bullet point. Here's the second one, is strengthen others. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All right. So again, back in verse 14, Paul calls the gospel the good deposit. All right, so let's kind of clean up the language a little bit. When we talk about the gospel, what are we talking about? 
The, gospel, the word gospel literally means good news. It's good news. And in Scripture, the gospel is always referring to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, in a way, that is most simply the good deposit. Now, I will tell you uh, where that good deposit isn't so good, where it kind of loses its shine, where we're like, is that really good? I think one aspect is when we look at the good deposit or the gospel as just simply religion, when it's just simply religion. And what I mean by that is when our faith in the gospel is coming to church and just doing these kind of weird ritualistic readings and and things like that, right? That's not going to be good to us if it's just these motions that we continue to go through. Or when it's just simply another version of religion is when it's just rules. Things that we keep to hold our resume up to God and say, look, look at me, smile at me, God. Look at how good I am, right? We will become neurotic and, and we will constantly be fighting for his smile, forgetting that we already have it in Jesus. The third thing is, is when that religion becomes our self-righteousness. When we look, when we compare ourselves to other people and say, look how much better I am at you in X area, parenting or in business or or whatever that might be. But, but the good news will never be good if that's our picture of what the gospel is. Here's another time where it can get us in trouble is, is when Christianity becomes nothing but a lobbying block or a voting block to be appealed to in things like politics. Now, friends, the gospel is far bigger, as we've talked about in weeks past, than any human institution or ideology. And so if that has become what Christianity is to us or what we understand it to be, we've missed it altogether. We need to be reminded about what's good about the good news. Remember, the good news starts with bad news. Remember that. What the Bible tells us is every single one of us are spiritually bankrupt, dead, rebels, coming out of the womb, shaking our fist at God, saying, I want to be king and I'm going to kick you off the throne at whatever cost. We're enemies of the one true God. And Romans 1 does have this picture of of a God who uh, rightly judges all people. But you know what that picture of Romans 1 is? Is it's God actually being a gentleman and stepping away saying, I'm actually giving you what you desire. And that is a life and an eternity apart from me. Deep down, that is who we are. The good news has to start with bad news. But here's the good news. Even though we are far worse than we ever imagined, if we are honest with ourselves, we know this. He still sent his son Jesus into this world. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life you and I could never live. He sent his son into the world to die a gruesome and hideous death on a cross to pay a penalty of that rebellion that we deserve, that we couldn't pay. He paid it. And then in the resurrection, in his ascension to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, what's happening is he's defeating sin and death. And this is why this is good news. It's because even though we were spiritually in the negative, as far negative as you could go, the cross brought it to a zero balance. And then he gave us his perfect record of an entirely right life and brought us to a positive, infinite balance. He did away with the guilt that we are saddled with and the shame that we walk around with. He promises to give us, because of the gospel, the Holy Spirit to work out of us the pollution of sin and rebellion that mars our relationships with one another and with God. In fact, 
we now have, if we trust in Jesus, a relationship with the God of the universe, not only for the next 60, 80, however many years, for the rest of eternity. We can't earn it. Friends, that's the good news. Why did I go through all that? Because we will never invest well if we don't see the good deposit as actually a good deposit. If we miss the point of the gospel and what it means for our day-to-day life, if we assume the gospel because our parents drag us to church every week or because it's the right thing to do, we will never embrace the gospel as good. But it is the best news. So as we're talking about investing the faith, I realize there are some people here who have never taken this deposit that God is offering to you through Jesus Christ. And I would just encourage you at the outset of this to consider the offer that he's made, that, that, that an infinite amount of wealth is offered to you, not based off of anything you've done or not done, but by what he's done. Consider what it would mean to embrace that today. All right, so let's get to the two bullet points. Be strengthened and strengthen others. Be strengthened, verse 1. Did you read it? He said, be strengthened by the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. So as he's calling Timothy to do the work of ministry, he doesn't start with, here's the five things you need to do on your checklist, right? Get busy. He actually uses a passive verb, which means Timothy is actually being acted upon. He's saying, be strengthened by grace. So before we go out and start doing for God, he's like, slow down, stop and cultivate and strengthen yourself with grace. Slow down on that for a minute. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He says in his ministry, he's like, we're not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. Paul's constantly telling Timothy, this is not about you. It's not your effort. You can't muster up enough to change the entire world. You need to cultivate the gift of grace in your life. Why does Paul start here? Have you ever been on a plane? You remember the beginnings of a flight where they say, if there's a sudden drop in cabin pressure, masks will drop from the ceiling, right? Uh, Has anybody been on a plane where the mask has actually dropped from the ceiling? Come on, be brave. Anybody? There was one in the last um, in the last service. How terrifying would that be, right? You're just cruising along, and I was like, burp, 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 the things start bouncing. What do they say when the mask drops? They say, first put the mask on yourself, and then go to help others. Why? Because if you start walking around trying to be a hero without a mask on in that moment, guess what's going to happen? You're going to run out of oxygen, and you're going to pass out, or worse. You're going to be of no help to anyone, Right? This is what it says, hey, before you start going and doing, Timothy, put the mask on. Be strengthened by the grace that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. And so, uh, friends, to my, especially my hard work, I'm very thankful for you people who do a ton of ministry, you Enneagram one, twos, and threes, right? Let me just ask you this question. As you go and love and serve and minister to other people, do you have your mask on? Do you have your mask on? Are you first being strengthened by the grace that is offered you? Because if you don't, you're going to run out of oxygen. You're operating at altitude, and there's not much air left. We can often tell where we're not being strengthened by grace because we start getting cranky and bitter and looking at other people and being like, well, they're not working as hard as I am, right? Or burnout. And friends, I'm just going to tell you, that is a pitfall I fall into all day long. It's a constant 
posture of repentance for me of trying to do everything on my own power. Here's what I think it means to be strengthened by grace, at least in part. One is just pursue um, the areas that, that, that really are pictures of how beautiful the gospel is to you. I don't know if it's songs or podcasts or whatever it may be, but cultivate grace. And, and some of the main ways that grace is communicated to us by God are what we call the means of grace, right? The means of grace. We believe there are three. It's prayer, God's word, and the sacraments. If we are not cultivating those things in our lives, there is no way we're going to have enough air to do the ministry that God calls us to. There's no way. Cultivate those patterns of praying and being in God's word. And you know what the sacraments mean? It means we actually show up to church on days like this where we are taking of communion together. We're going to be putting the mask on together later on in this service. Here's the second point. He calls Timothy to strengthen others. He says in verse 2, what you have heard from me. So that's essentially this picture of the good news you've received from me. He says that news, you're actually to entrust it to others. So he doesn't just stop with, okay, just sit down, be a spiritual couch potato, and just imbibe all the spiritual stuff you can and just leave it locked in yourself. He's saying entrust it. He's saying show it to other people. Place it before them is what that term means. And friends, that is the flow that we see all throughout Scripture of God's blessing to his people. In the Old Testament, in the Gospel, in the New. Let me show you in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, God is calling Abraham out. And he says, he says, I'm going to bless you. And then at the end, he says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's an in of the gospel and an out of the gospel. Go forward to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus has made these 12 and beyond his disciples. But then at the end, he says, now go and make disciples of all nations. It's not just for ourselves. We are not called to be Dead Sea Christians. You know what I mean by that? You know what the Dead Sea is? In the Middle East, it's a sea, right? Uh, it's, I think, Jordan and, and Israel border it. And one of the main tributaries headed into it is the Jordan River. But uh, the thing about the Dead Sea, if you've ever been, you can just like sit in it and float, right? You just stay right at the top. There's no fish. There's no plant life around it. Why? Well, because the salt content is 10 times that of the ocean. Life is literally unsustainable in these waters. And the reason the salt content is so high is because there's a lot of um, inlets, right? There's a lot of tributaries bringing all the silt and salt from the surrounding desert region coming into the sea. But guess what? There's nowhere for the water to go. The concentrations just build and build, and it is literally a dead sea. Friends, when we embrace the gospel as a church or as an individual, and we just look at it from a consumer mentality, we become a bunch of walking dead seas. When we think this place is just a holy hot tub where we just come and hang out together and we make each other feel good, but there's no outward flow of the gospel to the world around us, it becomes unsustainable for life, including our own spiritual vitality. Now, there's some caveats that he gives here at the end. He tells them to be faithful and to invest in the faithful. The first thing he says is, he said, hey, uh, what you have heard from me in the witnesses of many. So Paul, in essence, is telling Timothy, all right, Timothy, as you go out and do this ministry, don't get cute. Don't start making stuff up. Paul's saying, me as, as an apostle, I've actually given you all you need in God's word to disciple other people. And so, friends, for many of us, and what we're talking about here is really discipleship. That's what we see, helping other people learn to love and follow Jesus. It's not rocket science. 
Paul is saying, you have my words. Now go read it and teach it to other people. Lay it before others. I have a, a men's small group that have been meeting for a couple of years, and, and we look at that as a discipling relationship among one another, but there is no hardcore prep that goes into it week, week to week. We say, we're going to pick the book of Mark, and we're just going to read a chunk and talk about it and say, how do we live this out? And we do things like we try to drag each other along as we, as we, as we follow Christ. In fact, uh, Paul says, hey, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, the other thing he says is he says, invest it in faithful people. I believe all of us as Christians are called to, to introduce other people to Christ. But I think what this is talking about is it's saying invest in faithful men or people who will be able to teach others also. You know, there comes a point where God says to us, there's a strategic nature of who and what we pour our lives into. You know, there are some people who will not be faithful to the gospel. And I know there's this tendency of constantly going after um, that, and, and there is a point where our good shepherd does go after the lost sheep, but, but Paul's actually saying there's also limited capacity that we have. And so, and so spend time praying for and discipling those who are faithful to the gospel. Continue to grow in that. And the reason he's saying that is it's, is it's, for, it's for the future, because those are the people who are going to invest in the next generation. Now, for some of us, we're in seasons where that just has to be our kids, right? We're just kind of losing our minds. We don't have capacity to develop another adult discipling relationship. Uh, but, but that's okay, right? Let's look at these things as seasons. And, and here's the other thing I would say is, you know, don't make it weird, right? If, if you're like, okay, I want to I be in a discipling relationship with other people. Christians, we can just sometimes make things really strange. Uh, we're like, you know, sometimes it feels like a dating relationship where we sit down, we're like, okay, you're going to be my disciple, and then we're going to meet for an hour and 18 minutes every third Monday of, you know, and we just make it kind of awkward, right? Now, I'm not saying there's nothing to intentionality and what have you, but, but again, Paul and his discipleship with Timothy is let's go grocery shopping together. Let's go plant a church together. Let's go build some tents together. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let me show you a picture of what not to do, or at least how easy discipleship is in a negative way. Uh, when I was in campus ministry, we would have kind of those, you know, meet for one week, an hour, we'd read God's word, we'd pray, and that is so important. I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not trying to minimize those sorts of relationships, but um, I thought, man, this, this young man, this one young man in particular, he grew under my discipleship. I mean, I was a rock star that summer in my discipling of this young man, and, and uh, his mom happened to be one of my bosses at the regional level, right? Uh, and so there was one Christmas conference after I had discipled her son, and I'm going through the line to sign up. And, and I get in front of her, and she goes, I was like, hey, so-and-so. And she goes, whatever, dude. I went, whatever, dude? That is a strange response to me coming up to get you know, registered for this conference. And she said, yeah, I asked my son to do something in the house the other day, and you know what he said to me? I was like, what? He said, whatever, dude. And she goes, do you know where he said he got it from? Where? I knew exactly where he got it from. He's like, you. He goes, great job discipling my son last summer. I'm like, oh, you know, had to recover from that one a little bit. Now we had that sort of relationship. She can crack that joke. But to me, that was a picture of, hey, uh, discipleship goes beyond kind of those one hour time limits where we're reading God's word. It's, It's really a lot of it is caught. As people see us raise our children, as they see us care for our aging parents, as they see us be a coach on the basketball court, right? That's the picture I think we see more often in Scripture of discipleship. So here's a question. Who is your faithful person? Who is your faithful person? 
Is there an outlet? Even if you feel like I'm a baby in the faith, I'm not sure I can do this. Who are you just simply praying for that they'll grow in the gospel and that you're just like, hey, come with me. We're going to both try to figure this out together. And maybe that's a challenge to just ask the Lord to reveal that person to you this week. Here's the second point we're going to look at. Oh, got to fold my paper here. Is it's what's the nature of this work? What's the nature of this work then that Paul's calling Timothy to and I believe Paul is calling us to and, and really, can I just change terms a little bit? It, it, he's calling us to ministry. Now, you may hear this and say, Anthony, ministry is what you do because you went to seminary and you get paid, right? Uh, or it's what I do on a Sunday morning, but I don't know what to do the rest of the week. Well, Paul Tripp says, usually we think in ministry in two categories. It's vocational and locational. Vocational are folks like me. They're like, okay, you're the hired guns. You're the one who's supposed to go out and do all the ministry, right? Or... It's locational. I, I, I do ministry when I'm back in the children's wing or when I'm teaching a Sunday school class or when I'm you know, doing various forms of activity around the church or in ministry. But, but I would just say this, and Paul has a, a helpful category of what ministry actually is. The term ministry actually means to serve. That's what it means most basically. But here's the, here's the definition he used, and there's a lot of definitions you could probably come up with, but Ministry is simply meeting people's needs with love and humility on Christ's behalf. And that last part is important because it's not Christianity if it's not being done in the name of Jesus Christ, right? And so very simply, that's ministry. And and I'll just say this, for anyone who claims to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, uh, we are all actually called to minister. We're all ministers. You're going to read the word saints here in just a second in this verse I'm going to read. interpret the word saints as this. As we read the the New Testament, a saint is every single person who's trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's not what we would see in other traditions where it's like a super Christian who's hit these four benchmarks. So when you read saints, it's talking about you, okay? Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 4. He gave apostles like Paul and prophets and evangelists, uh, the shepherds and teachers like pastors and elders, right, is another way of looking that, to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, and for building up the body of Christ. And so we're all called to it. What does it look like? Paul sets some expectations for Timothy as we read through the rest of this passage. Here are the three metaphors he uses. In the first one, he he uses the picture of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. So first, let's look at the soldier, verses 3 and 4. He first says, share in suffering as uh, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. All right, so that term share in suffering, it's one word that means suffer with, right? Pathos and and with is, is the two terms that come together here. And Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, as you follow me, suffer with me. I'm in jail. I'm in chains. And he's saying that's going to be a part of ministry. One author puts it this way. He said, soldiers on active duty do not expect safety or easy times. And so that is actually an aspect of the ministry that we've been called to. There's a couple of folks in our church who have recently been deployed to active duty. And in that, in talking to spouses and and friends, they're, they're not expecting easy times. They just didn't go to the Ritz. They know that this is going to be hard work. In fact, I think a part of our discipling other people is recognizing that suffering and even persecution is a part of it. We'll get to this in a couple chapters, but Paul says this a little later in this book. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be 
right? Not some might be, but all will be persecuted. He goes back, let's go back. It says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. So what this is not saying is, is, hey, you know, if we're a follower of Christ, we have to be total separatists. It's us against the world. We can't ever engage in something like maybe an NFL football game, right? Um, but what it's saying is, is that term entangled is very important because sometimes we can get entangled in, in what the world around us offers to the point that we forget that we're on a mission from our commanding officer. And so one person put it this way, soldiers must concentrate as much as we're called to suffer. And you're like, great, Anthony, sign me up. Love ministry right now. I'm really excited about this. Well, well, here's here's what I want us to pay attention to is this last line. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. There is this commanding officer that they revere. And he's saying the job is to please that commanding officer with what he's called me to. Maybe I can put it this way. Back in seventh grade, so you've heard me talk about me being awkward and a baby giraffe, right? And never was that more evident in my life than seventh grade. What an awful year that was for awkward Anthony Gamage, right? Um, (laughs) Because I have some height to me in seventh grade, people are like, you must play basketball, right? Everybody who has height has been asked that question a hundred times, whether or not we even know what a basketball is. And so I thought maybe I should try out for the seventh grade basketball team. Literally one of the most scarring moments of my life. <laughs> Essentially, the coach is like, okay, first drill, I want you to you know, dribble down the court and just hit a layup. We're going to do that for the next like 15 minutes. I want you to count how many you make. You know, there's me running down the court. Bing, you know, I'm hitting the bottom of the rim. I'm throwing it over the glass. I had never made a layup in my life. It was horrible. Didn't make one. I heard my friend just snickering every time I came back, just making fun of me. It was awful. Like I, I, I kind of get weird feels up here as I'm talking about it right now. But here's what happened. My friend Joey Harrow is a star athlete, played college ball. His dad, Chuck. Chuck knew my dad couldn't really engage with me much because he was sick. And, and so what he did, Joey made the team. And the times where Joey had to now go to practice, Chuck would say, you're going to come over to my house and you're going to practice layups. And so Chuck, for months, worked with me on basketball and layups while Joey was a basketball practice. And even when he wasn't helping me practice, guess what I was doing? I was practicing layups. At that point, I wanted to make this next team that was coming up in a couple of months. Not because I wanted to make the team. Of course, that was a part of it. But I wanted to make Chuck happy. Chuck had poured his life into me. You know, three years ago, Chuck and I had a phone call. He's in his 80s now. And I just said, you still don't know how much that meant to me. That picture of me, and I made the team. Woohoo! I made a layup, right? It was really exciting. Many layups, actually. But, but the best part about that was I was actually to see a smile on Chuck's face when I came back and said, guess what? I made the team. And that's the picture of soldiering on that Paul is giving to Timothy. Here's the second picture. Is that of an athlete? Oh, go back. There we go. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So uh, an athlete back here in the Olympics in particular, they didn't receive gold medals. They received a laurel uh, wreath that sat on their head. And so that was the crown or the reward as they competed. And so uh, what he's saying is, is, an, is they're not crowned unless they compete according to the rules. The term there is lawfully. And so there's some debate as to what Paul is actually talking about. Either it's they're disciplined enough to do things like stay in the lane or stay in the circle as they're competing, or uh, back then before you competed in the Olympics, you had to give uh, a verbal assent 
uh, to the emperor or to some commanding officer that you were going to commit to train for 10 months before the Olympiad. In fact, it was binding. And in either way, I think what Paul is driving at is this picture of discipline. There is a discipline to the Christian faith. It's not something that just kind of happens automatically. The third picture he gives us is that of farming. It says it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And it's similar to discipline, right? Uh, have you ever met a farmer? Did you, have you ever known a farmer? You know, growing up in some areas, having friends from rural Virginia, I knew a lot of farmers, and those people were the hardest working people I've ever met in my life. They're up before the sun comes up. They smell really bad. They sweat a lot because they're doing things like shoveling dung, right? They're caring to crops and, and tractors and silos. They're not just working with the seed, but making sure everything's up and running for the next year. They're adjusting to drought. It's hard work to cultivate, Right? I think Paul is getting to this picture that there is hard work in our faith. It's not something that we passively just uh, engage with, but there's a cultivation. We do cultivation when we're being strengthened by grace. We're cultivating. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and they're like, yeah, no, we're done. I'm walking away from here, right? You're like, well, what do I do now? Or do you have children who it just feels like pulling teeth to talk to about Jesus from time to time and it feels like hard work? Say yes. The answer is yes. Yes, you've experienced these things before, right? What Paul is saying is this is normal. This is normal. This is what life cultivating faith in ministry looks like. Suffering, hard work, discipline, it's actually a sign of investing well. Now, I want you to also pay attention to the positives that he talks about. Pleasing the commanding officer. A crown. Paul talks other places about being crowned with righteousness, right? And other crowns that we receive. Even here, it talks about the first fruit or the share of the crops. We don't exactly know what that means, but what God is saying is you're not just doing this to spin your wheels. That's actually a blessing that comes upon you as you do the hard work of cultivating grace and ministry. But here's the last thing I want us to look at, because it'd be easy to skip this verse. I don't want us to do it. Paul says this, At the end, he says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. At the end of it, I'm sure he gathers the fact that Timothy and maybe some of us might be going, yeah, I'm not sure I'm down with this. This seems a little tough, right? And I'm sure he thought Timothy may be in the same place. And he just said, hey, just take a deep breath, Tim. I want you to consider the fact of grace again and again. I want you to slow down and think over the cost of discipleship. I want you to sit down and prayerfully consider how to engage with unique and ever-changing situations in ministry. And I put in here the third bullet point is using our imagination because that's another way to think about this, to think about the terms think over. Another way of rendering that is imagine. Dream prayerfully with God. Hey, what does this mean? What might this mean for the ministry you've called me to? And here's the good news is at the end, he says, I'm going to give you understanding in everything. So there is work on our part, but God says, as you think and pray and consider, I will meet you in that place to give understanding. I was reminded of this movie, Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or seen this or heard of the story of Desmond Doss. He uh, was a conscientious objector in World War II, which means uh, he didn't believe in war and killing, right? And he actually was assigned to a unit where he was a medic, but he didn't carry a gun into the battle. 
Well, they were deployed to Hacksaw Ridge in Japan. And they climb up this rope ladder to get up to the ridge, and they go and they attack, and they think they're doing pretty well on the first day, but the morning of the second day, they just get ambushed, most of them killed, pushed off the ridge. And there's a scene where Doss is right at the edge of the rope ladder. Everybody else had gone down. His friend had just been killed. And he gets to the top, and he stops. And he just goes, I don't know what you want me to do, God. What do you want me to do? It's like you've gone quiet. And as I heard that, I thought to myself, yeah, that's how it feels. Even when I attempt to do this stuff, to take it to God, to dream, to understand, it oftentimes feels like he goes quiet. But then you see God kind of answering that promise of offering understanding where in the distance, not a booming voice, not God sending them an email or a text, but, but you hear this person go, help. And Doss goes, ah, that's where you want me to go and labor. And so for the rest of the night, he ends up saving single-handedly 75 injured soldiers, lowering by a rope. And as he continued to do it, his heart began to grow in this ministry of service that he was doing. And, and about person 40, he's sitting on the edge of the ridge and his hands are bloodied. And he just goes, please, God, give me one more. And he goes right back into the battlefield. And as I was thinking about that picture this week, I was thinking, I think that's the picture God wants us to have. In our fear and in our reluctance, he wants us to be strengthened by grace and to go to God and say, God, help. Help me understand what you want me to do. And in the midst of it, he promises to meet us. And as he does, as we see those opportunities to love and serve others, our heart grows. And our prayer then becomes, please, God, give me one more to serve, to love, to introduce to you. I think that's the picture of investing well that Paul gives Timothy and us today. Let me close this as we move to communion. Lord, help us. Help us to invest well. Lord, I don't know what that means for my friends. I don't know where we are even with understanding the grace offered to us in our lives. And I don't know where we are in ministering to other people. I know that it's not necessarily native to our church culture to constantly be going, who can I walk with to introduce to Jesus? To disciple, to point to you. But Lord, may I just ask you to change that. And Lord, for the heart that has never said, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus, I pray that you will draw it to you today. Be with us as we move to communion, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.